I'll be reading the entirety of Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with them to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Dear Father, we uh, thank you for your words that you've provided us, Lord, to uh, learn more. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears today, Lord, to hear the message that you'd have us to receive, Lord. We pray that you'd guide Bob and uh, give him the words that, uh, uh, that you'd have for us, Lord. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. A good many years ago, a uh, young woman who was a part of our church back then, she's not here now, so don't look around, she uh, was going to have her car uh, worked on by the dealership, and, and the arrangement was that they would send somebody to come and to pick her up to go get her car. It would be in a white Pontiac or something like that. So she's standing out on the street, and a, a, a white Pontiac pulls up and stops in front of her, and she jumps in the car and shuts the door. The guy drives off, and he's looking at her, and, and finally he has the courage to say, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> wrong car, wrong driver. It was a mistake that could be serious. If you were watching the news, you know that there's a problem with Uber and that people are getting into cars assuming that the car that is there is the one they have called for, and, and bad things happen. It really is important to make some distinctions, uh, and that is true in the church. Think about even amongst the disciples of our Lord. Eleven were believers, one was not. The disciples did not know that. They were not aware of that. But when the difficult days come that Jesus is describing uh, earlier in, in uh, Matthew, it, there's going to be a time where it really is important to know whether someone's a member of the faith or not. There are places in the world today where Christians need to be very wise about who it is that they fellowship with, who it is they they enter into uh relationships with because that that could get you into a lot of trouble so jesus is here telling his disciples that they need to know how to distinguish as it were sheep from goats believers from unbelievers now i want you to think a minute about the the general context that we're talking about here matthew chapter 21 jesus makes his triumphal entry and and he cleanses the temple. And that, of course, sets off a firestorm of opposition by the Jewish authorities who are basically saying, 
just, just who do you think you are doing these things? And, and so as, as the issues go along, the questions and the answers begin to fly. And, and those questions are really questions with hooks. Shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They were, they were questions that were intended to discredit Jesus, to make him look bad, and if all possible, set him at odds with the law of the land. And you remember the question and answer period ends with Jesus saying, uh, I have a question for you. David was a son. He was also a father. Who is the Messiah in relationship to David? Because David calls him his Lord, but he also calls him his son. What is that about? And so all of these experts now are finding themselves in a most awkward situation because they've been made to look really bad publicly. Jesus is setting the stage for what is yet to come. But you remember then in chapter 23, he turns all of his guns loose in that, in that diatribe of criticism and rebuke for the hypocrisy of the Pharisees over and over. Woe unto you. Pharisees. Jesus is setting this thing up to where the opposition cannot do anything but get rid of him. We have to terminate this guy. The whole world is following him. We're in trouble. And then comes Matthew 24, where the disciples are looking across the valley at at the temple, and they're uh, marveling at the beauty of the temple and Jesus says in effect don't get too attached this temple isn't going to be around too long and that raises the question well when are all these things going to happen what's the timing of your kingdom and so Jesus then sets out to answer uh, those questions and basically he warns them about being deceived he tells them there's going to be a period of delay. It's not going to happen quickly, but there's going to be persecution and difficulty that comes along, and they need to be prepared, they need to be watchful, and they need to be faithful. When you get to the end of, of chapter 24, there, there are a couple of verses here which I think really set the stage for chapter 25. Look at verse 45. Who then... Well, let's go back one verse to 44. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible uh, uh, one slave whom his master will put in charge of his household and give them their food at the proper time? The word sensible is the same word that's going to be used for the five wise virgins. So the two issues that are going to be before us are faithfulness and wisdom. And those really get picked up in, in a chapter 25. And so that's where we're going to spend our attention. Three different stories are told. The story of the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. And then you have the story of the, the, the three uh, stewards or servants, two of whom are faithful, one of whom is unfaithful. And finally, at the last of the chapter, the story about the sheep and the goats, how to distinguish one from the other. So let's look first of all at the five foolish virgins as they are contrasted with the five wise virgins. You notice now, in every one of these stories, 
There are believers, there are unbelievers. There are those who enter into the kingdom, there are those who are barred from the kingdom for weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds like hell to me. And I believe in the context it is. So you have this issue of here's what believers look like, here's what unbelievers look like in a particular context. And the first has to do with this wedding uh, that takes place. And I want you to notice uh, a couple of terms. One is, and I'm glad you read the translation you did, Scott. At that time, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 25, many, most, I guess, would say then, the point is 25.1 links chapter 25 to what he's just said. This is a flowing out. So what Jesus has said at the end about the faithful and wise servant is now what he's going to illustrate by these three different sets of of contrasts that he gives. The second word I think you need to notice in that context is the word lamps. I noticed, at least in the ESV, uh, that they rightly said in the margin, or torches. I was going to bring one of my wife's little, you know, kerosene lamp things, but we tend to think of this whole thing in terms of a little kerosene lamp, you know, a little base at the bottom that's got oil in it and a wick and whatever. I'm not at all convinced that's what you're talking about here. This is really a word that's used much more for a larger lighting thing. It's, for instance, those many lamps or torches that were in that upper room when when the young lad falls out from hearing uh, Paul preach long, that had kind of consumed the oxygen, I think, in in the room. But the, the text that's really interesting is the text in John where it talks about this party of people who are coming to arrest Jesus, and it says they come with lanterns, and torches and weapons. And the word torches is this word. So they're distinguishing between a lantern and a torch. And so when I think of a torch, I, you know, I tend to think of something that's kind of on a, on a, on a stick and, and it's got this ball wrapped around it like you see some of the movies will have that, that has more illumination, uh, that is going on. The next thing I want you to notice is that the text really and literally says, these five foolish virgins took no oil. Now, I hate to be critical of the Net Bible at this point and because of some associations I have, but the word extra is not there. They'll tell you that, but but it misses the point. They didn't bring any oil at all. No oil. Gas tank is empty. No oil. So, I think it creates the wrong picture if you think that somehow they have these lamps and it's got some oil and they've been using it up and they run out, so to speak, of gas. The problem with that is it doesn't really portray an accurate picture of salvation, does it? Because then you're saying to yourself, well, if, if, if the oil is representative somehow of my relationship, uh, my faith in, in, in God, then are we saying I just don't have enough? It didn't last long? What are we saying? No. It never was. And that's the folly of it. Now listen, folks. Jeanette and I have done a lot of traveling, some of it recently. And and we are destined to get where we're getting and to find out we forgot something important. It it happens. It happens, right? And and these five foolish virgins are, are apparently living in the moment They are the now generation, and they are not thinking ahead and saying to themselves, let's see, we're going to a wedding celebration. 
there's going to be this torchlight parade. We have our torches. Shouldn't we also have some fuel for those? And you'll see the five wise ones. It says they took an ex, a container of, of fuel to use for their torches. So I'm thinking it works like this. I'm thinking that when they get ready to do it, they dip that torch into the fuel and then they light the torch and, and it goes on. When these foolish virgins say we've run out, my guess is that there's probably a little bit of oil in the actual packing of that thing, but they don't last but seconds. It is not that they ran out of oil, folks. They didn't have oil to run out of. That's the way I read the text. And I think, I think I'm right in that. Now, you'll say, well, look, it says they trimmed their lamps. Doesn't that, you know, when we talk about trimming a lamp, are we talking about turning that little screw that raises the wick a little higher, a little lower? The word that's used there is the word that has, that is never again used of anything to do with a lamp in that sense. It's the word that's used for beautify or arrange. It's the word, for example, that's used to talk about a woman and how she beautifies herself. It's, it's the word from which we get the, the, our word cosmetics. So it's, it's making it look good. It's, it's, it's arranging it. As I read the text, it seems to me that when the, the, the bridegroom arrives, all these women are saying, well, we got our torches. We know what we're going to do. This, this torchlight parade and they're getting it ready for the the ceremony that's going on. And uh, obviously, if you don't have any oil, it's, it's a little bit of a problem. So here they are. They haven't thought ahead in terms of, here's where we're going, here's what we're going to do. They bring the torch, but they don't bring the fuel. And so it's not evident, at that moment in time, it's not evident... Uh, and there's this long period of time that these ten virgins are together, and you really wouldn't know uh, offhand who was wise and who wasn't until the critical moment. It got late. The, the, the bridegroom was delayed. There's no problem with that. Everybody fell asleep, as you would expect, in a long wait, sort of like waiting at the airport. Nothing wrong with that. But when the announcement is made that the bridegroom is on his way, then it's time to get those torches out and to get on with the ceremony. And that's where the evidence is given that they don't have oil. Initially, the, the five foolish virgins think, well, <laughs> we'll just borrow a little. Can I have a little of your oil? Well, it sounds harsh that they're not going to share, but the truth of it is they only have enough for themselves. Their oil is their oil, but they can't supply the oil for the other. And so you'll have to go do now what you should have done sooner, buy some oil. They go off, they buy their oil, they come back, and the door is barred. Notice the words, Lord, Lord. This is Matthew. Does that ring a bell in your mind at all? Matthew chapter 7. Many of those will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all these great things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It's, it's that severe. It's that big a concern. By the way, in chapter 20, 
two, I believe, of Matthew. You have the story of the of the wedding feast, and remember the 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 the, the invitation is given out. People make excuses, and so the master says, "Go out on the highways and the byways and bring them in." There was one person though that wasn't allowed in because he didn't have wedding clothes. He didn't have the right attire to fit the occasion. He too was cast out and it's said to weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there are certain things that are essential. And that is, I think, in the context, the oil. And I think what we're really talking about is a genuine personal relationship with Christ. You know, as I look out in this audience, and and it doesn't have to be an audience of too many people, but you can almost be certain in any church, and I think that's the way the New Testament is written, where Peter says, if indeed this is true of you, in any church there are going to be people who who are um, a part of the group, but they really are not in the faith. They, they nod their heads. They may even be able to articulate, in a sense, the gospel, but they, they're not inside the faith. In my experience over the years, I found that a number of people wanted to be rebaptized because they had made professions as a child, and then they realized as an adult that they didn't really even understand what they were doing. But they sort of went along, and, and it's almost like, you know, well, I, I must be. Here I am amongst them. This is not a text to cause Christians to doubt their faith. It is a text which says to people who have been part of the believing community, part of the church, part of the assembly of, of people, to say, are, are you really, have you done that one critical thing? And that is to acknowledge your sin to acknowledge, as we do every week at the communion, to acknowledge the death of Christ, his resurrection, his death and sacrifice in your place, that that is what saves you. There's the core. There's the oil, if you would, in, in the lamp. I, I'm not going to have you saying, give me oil in my lamp. I'm just going to say, isn't it? Isn't that where it is? And if there is anyone listening to me at this moment who somehow has heard and who has gone along and, and who's been around and whatever, but somehow this text troubles you, that I would say just in your heart at this moment, say, Lord Jesus, if I haven't acknowledged my sin and my trust in you before, I do it now. That's not a huge, you know, it's not this huge difficult thing in one sense. It's just there to do. And I would encourage anyone who is in that spot to do so. So here are, as it were, these five foolish ones. By the way, do you notice that there's more emphasis given to the negative side than the positive side in almost every case? And I think that's because that word of warning is to be taken seriously. Now we come to the unfaithful servant in verses 11 through 27. This, by the way, really seems to pick up on what we see at the end of chapter 24, where a man who is uh, going to give uh, his possessions uh, to his servants, uh, and he will put them in charge, it says in verse 47, of all of his possessions. seems to me it's a following up of, of that. 
And, and so what do we find in this? This is a fascinating story. The, the two good guys, if you want to put it in those terms, the two good guys uh, are dealt with really in the same way and, and rather briefly. The master puts his possessions in their charge, and, and I think in the way that that's expressed, it's implied they are to manage those in a way that benefits the master. Wouldn't you agree? I don't think they're just supposed to hold them. I, I think they're supposed to do something with them. They're, in effect, they're to invest them. They're to, they're to work these, these funds until they increase. And these two guys get it. Oh, notice another thing. When he distributes his resources, he distributes them according to the ability that they have. In other words, the guy with one talent cannot say to the master, you gave me more to do than I can handle. It's not true. The five-talent guy gets five talents. Two-talent guy gets two. One-talent guy gets one. Nobody can say, I've somehow been unfairly burdened with the task. They've been given to do what the master knows they are capable of. So the uh, the five-talent guy comes back after a period of time. He comes to his master, and he brings not only the five talents, but another five and says, here, master, look what I've done. I've gained you five talents. I've doubled your your wealth in the period of time. By the way, this is all predicated on, on a simple assumption that we have today. Time is money. You know, there are lots of ways in which you can you can deal with the concept of delay. But the reality is the longer the delay between when Jesus went up into heaven and when he comes back is the longer the period of time that we are to invest. Isn't that why investment people say to you, you know, start young and have as much time as you can? So this length of time has happened, and all through that period of time, I think right from the very beginning, the five-talent guy put the money to work. And I don't think he put it in the bank and went off playing golf. He's a guy who was working that money, working the investments, and managing those in such a way that he gained the extra five. Two-talent guy comes along. I'm going to save the commendation for after him. Two-talent guy comes along. He's done the same thing. Immediately put the money to work, put himself to work managing the money, and he comes back having doubled, again, the master's funds. Notice the master's response. First of all, commendation, praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. There's not much any better than that, is there? Commendation for having done a good job. Then the reward, and it's it's re, re, really revealed in, in a twofold way. One, you gain work in heaven sort of proportionate to what you have done on earth. In other words, there is a reward relationship between what we do on, in this life, if we're faithful in this life, he's saying, then you'll be faithful in more. That sounds like Luke 16, and it is. You'll be faithful in much if you're faithful in little. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bestow upon you these things to do in the kingdom. That's part of your blessing. And the other is, enter into the joy of your master. 
I really think this is key. I, I think, and when we get to the wicked, lazy slave, I think we'll see that. But I think these two people loved their master. I think they loved their master and they loved what he wanted them to do. In other words, they were so identified with their master, they simply carried on what he had already started. He would have done the same thing. They are doing it and, and they're doing it out of joy. Now this is, this just blows the mind of a legalist because a legalist is just gritting their teeth, doing their duty. But these guys, are, are, are entering into the joy of what gives their master pleasure. What their master loves to do, they love to do. And heaven is getting that eternally. And so you enter into the joy of your master in this lifetime, and when you enter into the kingdom, you get that forever. The joy of your master. What a, what a beautiful incentive. Now, that sets the stage for the third Wicked, lazy slave, does it not? Wicked, lazy slave, he doesn't have any profit to, to gain, uh, to bring and produce. So what does he bring to his master? A crummy excuse. Isn't, it, isn't that true? He comes to the master and says, well, I, I don't have anything. But you see, the problem isn't mine, master, it's yours. You are a harsh man. You are a cruel taskmaster. And I, I was afraid of you. Boy, that's a strange thing in comparison with the two guys that enter into his joy and who love him and love where he's going. But he says, I, I, I was afraid. And so I, I just, I just hid your talent. Oh, by the way, when we first are introduced to this wicked, lazy slave, he immediately buries it. It isn't that he held on to it for a while and then said to himself, this is just too hard. No, he buried it at the beginning, meaning he had no intention of pursuing the benefit of his master. Now, here's where I want you to listen carefully because I'm I'm still wrestling with this, but here's my best take at it. He says to his master uh, that you harvest where you, you reap where you haven't sown. You gather, you know, where you haven't labored. And, and so I say to myself, is he right or wrong? Is he saying something that is really true of the master? Or is he saying something that uh, is false and he's based his disobedience on a falsehood? All right, there are two ways that I see to solve the problem. One is he's just wrong. And that's not true of the master. The thing that bothers me is the master says to him, you knew that this is the way I am. So try this on for size. I, I haven't read it anywhere. That ought to tell you a lot of things. So maybe you won't even write this down. Don't bother to erase it or scratch it off. One of the translations I think handles this well, but I think he's saying this, and it's the, it's the slave mentality. He's saying, you as a master expect to gain from what I as a slave do. No, you weren't out, in other words, he's saying, you weren't out there in the fields, you know, sowing the grain. I was. You weren't out harvesting this stuff. I was. 
I don't think it's right for you to gain from my labor. That's the way I take it at this point, and I'm willing to be persuaded otherwise. He's either saying something that isn't true, but the master is saying to him, well, if that's really what you believe, then why didn't you do that? And what he's saying, look, look. Okay, so you don't want to do hard work? Well, for goodness sakes, put the money in the bank. You won't make as much. And other people will do the work for you, but I'll gain. I think the reality is this man despises his master and he does not want his master to gain. When you look now in the epistles and the instructions to slaves and masters, I think it's 1 Timothy 6 that's the big one. But what it's saying is this. You who are believing slaves and have a believing master, you ought to be all the more faithful in your work as a slave to profit your master because your master is a believer. You ought to rejoice in his gain. That is the exact opposite of this slave. He cannot stand the thought that the master would gain from his labor. Now, rather than entering into the joy of his master, do you see? He despises his master, and I once again would like to remind you, Satan has a way of enticing us to disobey by beginning with a challenge to the goodness of God. Once the slave concludes the master is not good, in his mind, it justifies his disobedience. Just that simple. Why should I have to obey him? Why should I have to seek his good? He's not good. Therefore, I can do as I wish. What What a sad, I think, and tragic event to take place. So where does that take us? Well, I think it takes us to how we view the master. If we view the master as we ought to view him, if we view the Savior as we ought to view him, as good and kind and gracious and compassionate, would we not want to benefit him and his kingdom? Otherwise, we may not. By the way, I've heard people say in their excuse for not believing, they would say, any God who would allow blank to happen. I just can't follow. I can't obey him. I can't, I can't serve him. He's not good, is what they're saying. Then they have a distorted view of who our God is. Certainly, as we see in the Gospels, who the Lord Jesus is. All right, that brings us to the third category. And this is what I call the unconscious uh, uh, righteousness of of uh, the believer talks about when the when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne and he's going to pass judgment i'm not going to go down the trail of saying this is this judgment or that one people debate and argue that for till the cows come home i don't think it's the point the point is there is a time where men will be judged and separated believer from unbeliever. And I think what you see in this is there may be some surprises, right? There may be some surprises in that because of the standards that we have put on this. But here you have these uh, people that, that are, are sheep, others who are goats. The sheep are believers. The goats are obviously unbelievers. And so he says when he comes, look at verse 34. 
the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, for anybody who would be tempted to say, and, and this is sort of the social gospel thing, what Christianity is, social gospel says, is going out and being kind to other people. That's really what it's all about. And so that's really what Jesus is saying. Social justice, that'll what, that's what gets you into the kingdom. Notice how this is said, and who gets credit for what? It says, come you who are blessed of my father. Hmm, that looks like grace is going this way, not works is coming this way, right? It's the father's blessing, but it doesn't stop there. Inherit the kingdom. I said this last week. You don't work to inherit things, folks. Somebody else works. They gain something and they die and then you inherit. But you didn't do anything to inherit. That's the work of somebody else. The last thing is, it is the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Ooh, Tom, that sounds like Ephesians 1. I hate to say the word Calvinistic, but I'm going to say it anyway. Doesn't this sound like it's really leaning heavily on the work of God rather than on the work of men? So I'll just tell you how I read this text. I read it this way. It's God who does the saving. That's the root of our salvation. The evidence of salvation, I think, is in the fruit. But I want to, I want to caution you about this. There are those who, who would make good works the basis for our assurance. If that's the case, how come they didn't know about it throughout all their life? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, what? did I do that? You know, you're just absolutely oblivious to that. If good works is so important in, in, in the sense of either saving you or giving you your assurance, these people got the short end of the stick. Because they found out late what the Lord had been looking at as the fruit of their salvation. That's where, in my mind, when you look at texts like in Romans uh, chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 20, other texts that talk about being judged according to their works, I, I think you've got two things going. One, anybody who rejects Jesus Christ as Savior is basically saying to God, I'll get there on my own. So God says, okay, let's take a look. Their works. It shows they failed. Uh, so I, I don't think you could say that. It, this is just talking about that which manifests the nature and the character of God. I think that's what you see. In, in the second story of the faithful and the unfaithful servants, the faithful servants reflected their master. They were like him. They had his values. They took on his assignment with joy because that's that was was them. They they embraced it. They identified with it. I think that's what you see. The fruit here is the outward workings. Oh, by the way, just for thought, go back to uh, Matthew chapter 7. And remember there are those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? You know, all this razzle-dazzle stuff. And what is what does the Lord say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And then he goes on to talk about the good tree is known by its fruit. Fruit is not casting out demons. Fruit is not doing miracles. 
I think fruit is manifesting the character of Christ. Now, if that's true, then I think that's what we're going to see in this instance. Notice this. this. These are not grand, spectacular events. You're dealing with the people who are regarded with low esteem. By the way, I have to say, I think these are primarily believers. He says, these my brethren. Now, when you read what Jesus has said about the persecution that's going to come, and men are going to hate you, and they're going to persecute you, let me tell you, Christians will not be popular. And who is it that's going to visit them in prison when they get thrown in prison? Who is it that's going to feed them when, when in a sense, the system shuts them off? It's only believers that are going to do that. So what he's saying is, you are going to identify with those who were lowly and those who were in need. Very obvious needs. Food and drink and whatever. And by the way, that takes me back again. It's a strange statement that's made in chapter 24, verse 45. He will put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. I think two things are expected of faithful servants. One is to care for the household of faith. And the other is to produce profit for the king. And I think we see that taking place in this. So you have those who are the genuine sheep. They have manifested that by their care and concern for those who are brothers and sisters primarily and those who are in need. These are simple things, by the way. It's not something we say, well, gee, I just wouldn't know where that, where to start. Just look, folks. Just look. Look in this group and you will find people who have those needs. It's not that hard to see. But there are those who are blind to it, much like the, the priest and the Levite in the story of the, the Good Samaritan. The need's right in front of them. But they just don't think that's important enough work for them to do. Here's the work that the Lord says he likes. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to say a couple of things. A, it struck me late, as it always does. Struck me this morning. This is Jesus. This is Jesus that's being described. When I read these three sections here, I read it like I read Proverbs 31. You know, and you see this idea. Do you know anybody, as, as many godly women as we have, I mean, even Gordon would have to admit, Charlene isn't everything Proverbs 31 says. You know, Betty Crocker, Betty Grable. Yeah, anyway. I, no, I don't want to go down that trail. Anyway, the, the, the point is, that's an ideal woman, is it not? That's an ideal person. And it's set there as an, as an ideal to strive for, but we all know, women, we're not going to make it. And when we look at this and we see these standards, you have to say to yourself, I know these are great ideals, but I know I can't perfectly do it. And then it struck me, Jesus is the servant. That's what, that's what the Old Testament keeps calling, my servant. So in Isaiah 52, you'll see my servant and it describes the work of him. It, it, the servant, the true servant is the Lord Jesus. And he does all of these things. How does he identify himself in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue of Nazareth when he quotes Isaiah 51? By these very things. 
And, and when John the Baptist says to Jesus through his, his emissaries, are you really the one? What does Jesus say to him? Look at what I'm doing. These things. These things. He proclaims release to the captives. All of this. This is what Jesus did. And, and if that's the case, my hope is not that I can live up to this text. My hope is Jesus did. And therefore, I need him. And in him, then these things are fulfilled. Now, just think about one thing. Go back to the wisdom piece. The foolish virgins were those who didn't really think of their present responsibilities in light of the future. Think about Jesus when he knows. I I was just looking at this in in, uh, John, I think it's 19, but it says, when Jesus realized that all things had been accomplished, he said, I thirst. That was to fulfill scripture too. But my point is, Jesus knew exactly what was required of Messiah, and he methodically did it. When you see this whole last section that is taking place where Jesus comes to Jerusalem, everything Jesus does is does, he does in, in the sense of preparing for what he knows his ultimate task is. And so he goads his opponent. He shames them in front of a crowd. Uh, he does all of these things uh, and even sends Judas on his way. He does all of these things to perfectly fulfill his task as a servant. Nobody was wiser in what they did in the present in the light of what they are to do in the future. Jesus says that the will of his father is his will. And so the hope that is set before Jesus is that which the Father takes pleasure in. Jesus takes pleasure in what pleases the Father. He is the faithful steward who brings profit to the Father, right? He brings glory to the Father. All of these things that we see described here are Jesus. And that's where we find our hope and our comfort. Not by us working harder, trying harder, making resolutions. It's simply by saying the one who fulfilled these standards is Jesus himself and he is the one in whom I trust. He is the one in whom I exist and I live and dwell in him. And the fruit that comes, John 15, the fruit that comes from that is these things. And those things will come if you're a believer, but only as the evidence, flawed though it may be, the evidence of who our Father really is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. What a wonderful passage it is and and what a wonderful Savior we have who perfectly fulfills all of these ideals. May we have our faith and trust in him. May we be encouraged by the fact that the things that you give us to do are not Superman activities. They're simple activities that care for other people in your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.